Welcome to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used. We're just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast and the upcoming Future Tech Health Podcast split-off. Uh, we're going to be recording for both, and I'm with John Lemansky. He's the founder of uh, Biohack MD. So, John, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. So, tell me a, a little bit about yourself and uh, what led you to create uh, you know, the website and uh, your business. Yeah, so I'm a uh, you know, traditional uh, physician trained in internal medicine, and um, I worked as a hospital physician for quite a long time. Um, noticed that a lot of the things that I was treating in the hospital setting were really based around our lifestyle, you know, mostly dietary, but also lifestyle um, changes. And so um, for myself, I had been uh, more of a ketogenic, low-carb person for a long time and had been doing uh, biohacking for quite a long time. It wasn't really called that at the time, but, you know, exercise and different forms of really trying to optimize my health. A lot of people started noticing that, you know, I was their age, but I was a lot healthier and they were struggling with kind of the traditional recommendations. And so a lot of people started reaching out to me um, in terms of how could I actually treat them as a physician. So I started treating people one-on-one. And what I noticed was that there was a really kind of desire out there for this kind of information. Um, And as a physician, treating people one-on-one I'm pretty limited as far as how much uh, time and how many people I could actually uh, interact with. And so I uh, started BiohackMD to really try to give a lot of the insights that I've come up with uh, throughout my training and uh, interactions with different people, but to put it out there so that people could kind of understand, you know, obtaining optimal health goes beyond just uh, changing your diet or doing some sort of fad diet restriction it really kind of encompasses a lot more than that. And so I went to kind of a lot of the sources from different biohacking techniques, whether it's sauna, you know, uh, cold thermogenesis, uh, exercise, and uh, tried to get the information from the source and put it out there for people to um, understand. All right. So uh, you're acting as a regular doctor right now, but do you add, um, you know, I guess, nutritional counseling to your practice or what does it look like? to work with you? So, yeah, my my uh, practice is probably a little bit uh, less traditional. I mean, I do um, a lot of lab works, a lot of basic internal medicine uh, functions, but my goal is to try to prevent a lot of the diseases that we see. And so my focus is really on preventative health, longevity health. So looking at each individual from the standpoint of where are they at, number one, genetically, but number two, metabolically, are they, you know, healthy, unhealthy? Um, are they young, old, and what their optimal goal is? For most people at this point, it's uh, living longer, but also living healthy, so that you know they don't want to just be 100 years old and in a wheelchair. They want to be highly functional, um, cognitive, and so really trying to focus on how are we going to get somebody to that standpoint without just using drugs as the antidote. But how do we actually uh, work on, obviously, dietary changes, but different things in their life to kind of get them as healthy as possible for as long as possible? 
So what's a, you know, what's a sampling of the goals that your patients have when they come to you? Or is it, do you look at them and say, hey, based on what you look like, um, you know, I'd recommend X, Y, and Z. Like, how does that happen? Do they come to you and say, help me? Or do you say something? It's a combination of the two. Um, I think most people come to me initially because they want to lose weight. Um, and so the goal for a lot of people is, look, I need to lose 50 pounds. I can't get it off. How do you, how do you help me get that off? For a number of other people I, I work with are entrepreneurs, CEOs, who are maybe not overweight, but they've put so much into their business to be, become successful that now they're starting to realize, look, my sleep pattern isn't very good. Uh, I am starting to put on more weight. Uh, my mood is not where I want it to be. I'm starting to have you know, some issues. I'm taking blood pressure medications. I'm taking diabetes medications. I know I don't want to just take medications for the rest of my life. So how do you get me off of those medications? How do you really change it so that I can be more functional, so that I can run my business in a, in a more productive way, be sharper, be more cognitive, uh, be able to accomplish more? So it's really kind of a gamut of you know, I want to lose weight versus I just want to be as highly efficient as possible, and I know I need to do certain things in my life to make that happen. Um, so th it's probably a combination of, of those two major things. So what are some of the, um, you know, how do you first start working with a patient? You know, what are some of the protocols? Do you have them do a, a questionnaire or do you have them, uh, you know, you Correct. provide immediate recommendations that work for everybody for a start? So medicine is kind of going more individualized. I mean, there is obviously just traditional medicine that is kind of, you know, you're a cog in the wheel. But I think people who are more aware of their health, want to have it individualized to themselves. So it starts off with a pretty detailed questionnaire, including you know past medical history, their family history, what they've done in the past, their kind of dietary habits, exercise, uh, how much time they devote to taking care of themselves. And then it's a pretty strong gamut of lab work that we look at that really goes beyond just kind of your generic uh, labs that you'll get at your primary care doctor. We're looking at genetic markers of, you know, Alzheimer's disease, uh, things like cardiovascular disease, um, inflammation markers, things that maybe most primary care doctors are not going to actually look at. And a lot of those markers will really look maybe 10, 15 years ahead versus kind of waiting until something presents itself and then saying, oh, we need to treat this. For example, you know, we'll do a fasting insulin test, which is pretty easy to do. You could have a normal hemoglobin A1C, which is a marker of basically, you know, diabetes for 10 years, and yet your fasting insulin is going to be sky high. And that'll tell you that, look, you're on your way to become pre-diabetic, diabetic. The uh, inflammatory kind of system is in process. And so we'll be able to head off a lot of these um, kind of diseases that we see in later life if we, if we really start earlier on by tackling the problem. So once I have that kind of information, then it's a question of, okay, tell me about your lifestyle. Are you somebody who is traveling all the time? Do you have you know, a company where you're working 100 hours a week? How am I going to incorporate kind of the things that I think you should do within the constraint of, of your life? So it's very, very detailed, specific to the individual, um, and we work you know, quite together hand in hand for a set period of time. So what are some interesting things and patterns and phenomena you're seeing in your patient population? As with everybody else, I think in the United States and around the world, we have a big issue with prediabetes, diabetes, insulin resistance, 
and metabolic disease, um, as well as mitochondrial disease. And a lot of the things that we are seeing in terms of dementia, cardiovascular disease, uh, diabetes, even cancer, are really going to be driven by dysfunctional mitochondria. And that is usually due to our lifestyle, environmental toxins, and then our nutrition. And so it's instead of looking at it like, well, you have this disease or you have this disease, we're trying to, I'm trying to look at what's the underlying cause of all these things. And so what I'll find is a lot of people will have uh, either genetic predisposition to something, but it's really the lifestyle that they're in that's kind of driving this dysfunctional mitochondria, which is basically like the battery uh, of your cell. And once that happens, then you start developing a lot of these different diseases that we're seeing. And so the question is, how do you fix that? And there's ways to fix that with nutrition, but then also starting to incorporate some lifestyle changes and biohacking techniques. Um, so obviously, I see a lot of the things that most doctors will see, um, but I'm, I'm trying to catch it a little bit earlier and trying to offset it a little bit earlier so that they don't go down that pathway. So what are, um, you mentioned that you can look at uh, fasting insulin is very, mm-hmm. very important. You know, most doctors, as I understand, they just tell you to check your blood sugar. Um, so right. can you talk a little bit about why insulin is a better indicator of, you know, of, of metabolic health versus blood sugar and you know, a little bit about that dynamic? Absolutely. And I will say the caveat with fasting insulin is that it's, it's one of those tests where you could take it in, in different arms at the same time and you'll get different numbers. So it's not a really? pinpoint act. Yeah. So it's not a pinpoint accurate test, but it gives you a big insight into what's coming down the road. So for instance, you could have a normal hemoglobin A1C, which is an average over time of what your blood glucose is. But what will happen is you'll have high levels of glucose in your system and insulin will go up and that insulin is going to go up to drive the glucose down. And so you'll have on your, on your lab markers, probably uh, fasting glucose so that is not really high. You'll have hemoglobin A1C that is not very high, but your insulin level will be like 50, meaning that your body is overproducing insulin to counteract the glucose that you have in your system. And yet without checking the fasting insulin, all the other numbers will look okay. So you'll go to your doctor, they'll check those numbers and they'll say, oh yeah, you look good. Meanwhile, you have this process that's being driven in your system. And unless you check it, and um, are aware of what that test can do, which is a simple test. Uh, most people will not even be aware that for 10 years or so, you're having a very high insulin level. And the importance of that is you will do a lot of damage to the microvascular. So the small blood vessels are going to go into this inflammatory pathway that it's basically going to damage it. And yet you won't see any signs. You're not going to have chest pain. You're not going to have problems with you know, erectile dysfunction. And yet, you're doing all this damage to your body without even really realizing it. Once it starts presenting itself with like, okay, I'm having chest pain or I'm having some issues with my cognition. Well, then you've had like 10 years of, of this process happening where you could have prevented it. And so by using that simple test, we can say, okay, look, for you, you need to do X, Y, and Z to bring that down. And then we can track it and make sure that it's actually, uh, you know, working. So what's um in the in terms of uh, your insulin number? What is the um what is the measurement? You know, if it's thirty or twenty or fifty, it's fifty watts. And what is a good range to be in? 
So in general, insulin is, is tracked depending on the, on the lab that you use different ways. You look for an insulin, a fasting insulin, that's going to be less than two in general. Obviously, um, there's some variability uh, within that lab market. Like I know blood sugar could be milligrams per deciliter or another, I guess, millimolar. But what, what is the unit yeah, of so measurement of insulin? Units per millimole, basically. Okay. So what you're looking for is lower the better in general. Um, obviously, that's a, a pretty generic term, but that's essentially what you want. Um, so in terms of high numbers, well, it's really depends on kind of the trend. So if you take a test one time and you get one number, it doesn't tell you as much as the trend over time. And so if we do different uh, techniques like changing diet, doing the biohacking techniques, and that number starts coming down precipitously, which you usually will, um, then we can show, okay, based on what you're doing, your, your need for insulin is going down tremendously. And then different markers that we look at like homocysteine, high sensitivity CRP, which are some markers of inflammation will also start to trend down because they're really being driven by the same process. Okay. Um, so it's uh, units per millimolar. So you said some people could have up to 50 when two is I mean, ideal? I've seen, I've seen higher than that, yeah. I've seen oh 70, 80, 90. So I've That's seen crazy. big, big numbers, yeah. And it makes sense. So basically the way that the body works is it's going to use as much insulin as you need to bring the blood sugar down because there's a few things that the body wants to regulate very tightly. Number one is going to be glucose. Number two is going to be temperature and then something called acid base. So your body's going to do whatever it can to bring those numbers within an ideal range that's physiologically normal. Um, Interesting. But, but we can do things where instead of really using medication, so the standard treatment for prediabetes diabetes is we're going to use medications to lower the blood sugar but yet that doesn't address the insulin. And so we're kind of treating the, the wrong number at this point. Whereas if we are actually focusing on trying to bring the insulin down, and there's many ways to do that, then you're really tre treating the root cause of the problem. So what are some of the, uh, the protocols that you'll use? I, I mean, I guess, I guess obviously diet is like the biggest hammer that you'll use. But um, right. you know, let's say I come in, um, you know, 50 years old, uh, my insulin is like 30 or something. And, you know, I'm like 50 pounds overweight. You know, I'm not feeling so good. I feel sluggish, et cetera. What, what would be your protocol for someone like that that fits that profile? So most people will kind of follow the same kind of protocol, whether it's low carb, high fat, or ketogenic. It really depends on a couple of uh, variables. Number one, you know, how, how willing are they to, to go to the extreme? Because for a lot of people going ketogenic, may be very difficult in the sense that you have to be pretty restrictive in certain ways. But, but it starts off with really focusing on the quality of nutrition that people are eating. So obviously getting rid of processed foods, things that have high levels of uh, fructose, high levels of glucose, so restricting carbohydrates to some degree. But within that, you know, carbohydrates get a bad rap in the uh, ketogenic community. There are good carbohydrates, there are bad carbohydrates. So using you know, whole vegetables that have good fiber source, I'm not opposed to that. And that'll actually drop the glucose, drop the insulin. Using good sources of protein, good sources of fat, and not necessarily going to the extreme where we're eating 80, 90% of our calories as fat. I don't think that everybody needs to do that. But just doing that simple kind of change in the types of food that they're eating, 
will will have a tremendous impact on um, you know insulin levels. And then doing simple things like the types of exercise that they use. So you don't have to be on a treadmill for two hours just gutting it out and exhausting yourself. You can do you know 20, 30 minutes of HIT uh, training, and that'll lower insulin tremendously because you're using the glucose in your system for energy for your muscles, and then you're you're basically increasing insulin sensitivity, so you don't need as much insulin to be produced to get the same effect. So you could do mm. simple simple things like that, which will drop it pretty quickly. And what I usually will tell people is the weight that they're worried about, because inevitably most people are still worried about weight, is really a kind of a side effect of this dysfunctional metabolism. So if your yeah. insulin is high, you're going to be basically taking all the calories you take in and you're going to be storing them as fat. And so by simply changing that, reducing the insulin, you're going to start losing fat, essentially. So what are some um, things that people that are just starting on this journey can do? And then what are some things that people can do once they've been doing it for several months? You know, like, for instance, maybe uh, intermittent fasting may be very difficult Mm -hmm. for someone at the first blush, but later on, it's a good tool. You know, what are what do you see in like beginning, middle and end? What are some helpful tools? Yeah, great question. I think it's important to take these into phases. So most people who have a certain goal have been gaining weight or been unhealthy for many, many years. So to think that you're going to change that within 30 days is unrealistic. So usually we'll set people up with different phases. So phase one, you know, change your diet. It doesn't have to be ketogenic. It doesn't have to be low carb. It just has to be real food. And cooking your food is extremely important because uh, if you go to fast food or restaurants, inevitably they're going to use vegetable oils, which are extremely pro-inflammatory. So doing simple things like cooking their food, changing it to high-quality food, avoiding processed food, avoiding uh, fast food is number one. Uh, Incorporating a simple exercise routine, like I mentioned, is usually step two. Uh, Focusing on sleep patterns. So a lot of people I work with who are highly functional, you know, kind of type A go-getters are not sleeping properly. And if you don't sleep properly, you're really kind of uh, in overdrive and you're, you, you're doing more of a sympathetic uh, activation of your system, which increases your stress hormones, things like cortisol, which also play into insulin resistance. And so focusing on sleep, trying to really dial that in by making sure that it's high quality sleep, that's usually step three. Step four would be, like you mentioned, intermittent fasting. And there's simple ways to start intermittent fasting. You know, simply eat dinner a little bit earlier at night, maybe five, six if you can, and then delay until the next morning until 10. You've just done about a 16-hour intermittent fasting window. Most people mm-hmm. tend to find that that is more realistic to do. Um, so then incorporating intermittent fasting. And then we get into some of the funner things, which I like to incorporate, which is using sauna. So sauna, 20 minutes a day. Oh if you do it four days a week, has been shown to decrease your uh, risk of heart disease and mortality by 50%. So if you go into a sauna for 20 minutes, it it improves your insulin sensitivity, it improves your cortisol levels, it reduces your stress, and it gives you a better chance of not dying from a heart attack. Most people will do that in a heartbeat, um, no, no pun intended, but that is something that I think a lot of people can, can incorporate they might not realize the significant benefits from it. Uh, but once you tell them that, yeah, it's an easy one to incorporate. Um, and then things like stress reduction, stress reduction, 
is a huge one that, you know, in the medical community is kind of looked at, you know, with sideways glance, like, yeah, okay, reduce your stress. But there's a lot of studies that show if you do reduce your stress, you are reducing cortisol, you're improving your insulin sensitivity. So all these things really kind of play together to maximize your, your ability to be healthy or unhealthy. And so it's really a, a stepwise process that generally I, I recommend people work with me for about a year. And at the end of the year, they, they, they know everything they need to know to, to be healthy the rest of their life. Whether they do it or not is, is a different you know story. But Right, right. Yeah. What's, definitely um, a process. Any other tools in the toolbox, you know, metformin or uh, hyperbaric oxygen or exogenous yeah. ketones? Or anything else that's good or bad out there? Cryotherapy. Yeah. So some of my favorite ones, um, ice therapy. So I actually just finished an ice bath not too long ago. Um, I, for most people, the idea of jumping into an ice bath is probably the worst idea you can recommend. They just yeah. like look at you like, yeah, that's never going to happen. Um, but inevitably, once people kind of start doing it, it's their favorite uh, biohack because it makes you feel so good. Uh, you sleep better. You improve your mitochondria. You increase something called brown adipose tissue activation. So when babies come out, they have a lot of brown adipose tissue. That's why they don't freeze to death. As we get older, we thought we got rid of it. But the reality is we just don't activate it because we're always in, you know, a sterile environment where it's 72 degrees. If you actually go into cold temperatures like doing an ice bath, doing cryotherapy, you activate that again. And what happens is you start actually using energy all day long. So you have sure. this thing called UCP1, which is a way you kind of burn energy. So uh, in order to basically heat yourself because you've gotten so cold, you start making more of these proteins that basically dissipate heat. And so if you do it, then you're kind of burning energy all day. And that goes back into lowering your insulin, lowering your glucose. Um, so it works extremely well. Um, and then okay. you mentioned exogenous ketones. Um, for full disclaimer, you know, I do have a, a product that does have exogenous ketones MCT. So obviously I'm a little bit biased with it, but um, okay. I use that a lot of times for people who are having a hard time uh, with the intermittent fasting, um, it's a good way to kind of segue into it. I do a lot of long-term fasting where we'll do five to seven days of water fasting. Um, I do that usually every three months or so. And with that, a lot of people have a hard time for the first two days or so. And so I'll use the exogenous ketone MCT uh, just as a way to kind of get through that hump and then you know, basically stream off of it and just do the fasting. But that, to me, is one of the most beneficial things for longevity purposes. You basically recycle all your cells. You generate new immune system that's much healthier so you don't get sick. Um, you generate something called autophagy, which is basically cleaning out all the dead cells and making new ones. So we do do that um, once people have kind of become adapted to, you know, being more of a fat burner, using more of their fat energy uh, instead right. of just burning sugar all day. And um, well, then, yeah, I mean, a lot of different uh, modalities. I mean, the hyperbaric oxygen chamber, a lot of people can't afford it um, because it is costly. Mm -hmm. uh, so it depends on, on the client I'm working with. If they have unlimited funds, then, yeah, I think hyperbaric oxygen is amazing. Um, there's something called LIVO2, which is a hyperoxygen hypoxic uh, machine that basically fluctuates between you having no oxygen and then right. flooding your system with oxygen. 
which really will generate a lot of nitric oxide, which helps kind of dilate your blood vessels. And so you lower blood pressure. Um, it's basically like Viagra on steroids for your whole body is how I like to talk about it. So there's a lot Sounds of different kind tools of, uh, out there extreme, that, are, yeah. that are amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not, uh, it might feel extreme at the time, uh, but it, it definitely works uh, tremendously for heart function sure. and just overall health. What's, um, you know, since you have a product in the exogenous ketone world, I would bet you've looked into it quite a bit. Um, yep. So you use it, like you said, to help uh, people fast. Um, how do you use it? And, you know, what, what's your thoughts about using it um, before meals or after meals or, you know, multiple times a day? What, what uses is it good for? Which ones is it not good for? Yeah, I would say primarily you have to get your nutrition down first. If you're just going to say, look, I'm going to eat what I want to eat, but I'm going to take this because it's going to give me an extra boost and I'm going to lose weight, it's probably not going to work. I'll use it uh, for, for myself once a day uh, because I do 24-hour fast. So I just eat dinner. I'll do a, a coffee with MCT in the morning, and then midday I'll do one scoop of the exogenous ketone MCT, and that would kind of give me a little boost uh, for the day. I think if you're doing longer-term fasting, it works pretty well the first couple of days just to kind of give you an extra boost. Um, I use it a lot right before I exercise. So because I'm fat-adapted, because I use mostly fat for energy, um, I, I still will hit kind of that wall, um, not bonk per se, but definitely hit a wall where my strength, my energy will go down. If I use it, I get that extra boost, and I don't tend to have that kind of decline. And so I find it to be pretty helpful for that. So three major ways, you know, whether you're doing an extended fast, exercising, and then during the day, it gives you kind of that extra boost without, um, you know, getting the jitters from drinking too much coffee. What if you're, um, if you feel like your nutrition's pretty good, um, what would happen if you took it before each meal? You know, you didn't use it as an excuse to eat garbage, but you ate well and you did that. What effect do you think yeah. that might have? Well, it'll give you a little extra boost in terms of uh, blood ketones and brain ketones. So you'll get a little bit more energy. You'll probably reduce the amount that you eat because it does make you feel so, uh, somewhat full. Uh, so it'll probably re reduce some of the caloric intake. Um, so I, I don't think it's a bad way to do it. Um, but I, I do think that it's one of those things where it's a supplement to everything else that you're doing. So it's not like something you should just take just to take. It, it should be for a specific purpose. Yeah, one one way I've used it is if um if I'm fasting overnight and I mm -hmm. want to extend my fast for you know an extra hour or two, I'll take it. Yep. It makes it easier to get to the finish line. Absolutely. So you do have a period in the day where you do have a couple hormones that are active. When your stomach starts growling, I call it the gremlin hormone. It's ghrelin, and that kind of just stimulates this hunger that you are just you got to eat something. And when you take them, it suppresses that. And so it definitely gives you about a two-hour window where you feel a lot calmer, you're not starving. Um, it tends to help extend that, that period without really kind of affecting your ability to access your own fat source for energy. Because that's kind of the knock on it is that people are going to say, well, if you're taking exogenous ketones, you're not actually using your own endogenous ketones or fat. I don't really see it that way. And it's not a huge caloric intake. You're talking about maybe 40 calories. So you're really not going to be suppressing your own fat burning um, that most people are concerned about. Yeah, interesting, because I just spoke to someone that that's, that's what they thought uh, it would do, is it would 
suppress your own production of ketones and provide you that supply so you wouldn't need to make them? You know, if you were basically taking it all day long, every hour on the hour, then maybe. But if you're talking about taking it once or twice a day, I mean, you have to look at the amount of calories that you're talking about. It's not going to suppress your your own endogenous. And, I, and I've checked this with, you know, blood meters and um, it, it doesn't suppress your own ketone production. I've also heard the same thing about fat from someone in the, you know, in the keto world. They said, well, if you're having a lot of fat, you know, why would your body use its own fat? But then again, I just right. spoke to another person that said, well, you know, I, I wasn't losing weight and then I upped my fat, you know, from like 90 to 140 grams a day. And then I started losing weight. So it seems to counter that. So what are your thoughts there? So I think it depends on um, a couple things. Um, Number one, I think if you are consuming massive amounts of fat, uh, you will not lose weight. It's still there. There still is an energy component where you still. I mean, I, I know calories have a bad rap now, where we say calories don't matter, especially if you're ketogenic. Calories still still do matter. So if you know kind of what your total energy expenditure is, and you're consuming excessive amounts of fat from that. So let's say for me, my t- total energy expenditure is about four thousand calories. If I'm eating 5,000 calories of fat, I'm not losing weight. I'm going to probably be gaining weight. But if you are still under that threshold and your ratio is higher, meaning that you're consuming more fat, it will help in terms of lowering your insulin production. It will help in terms of you know giving you more of a satiety effect where you're not as hungry. And depending on the type of fat that you're consuming, you know you may be getting a little bit higher levels of ketone, beta-hydroxybutyrate, and so your brain is a little bit happier. A lot of it depends on what kind of fat you're talking about. If you're just doing liquid fats like butter, ghee, uh, it may or may not um, impact your ability to lose weight. So I think there's a lot of caveats to, to that one statement. In general, I try to keep yeah. the calories below uh, that number uh, if people are trying to lose weight. If they're trying to just maintain, then I think you can be a little bit more more liberal um, about it. Okay. Yeah, what what percentage of uh, patients you know who uh, have the goal of losing weight and they just can't do it even if they seem to be eating right? And is that is that possibly the reason the cal- caloric intake? I think so. I think uh, especially as keto and uh, low carb is becoming very popular, and there's a lot of products out there. I think as bulletproof coffee has become extremely popular, uh, mm-hmm. I know some people are downing them, you know, four or five a day, and you're talking oh, wow. about two that. 2,000 calories, because uh, each one is about 400 calories. Uh, so I'm drinking regard, one right now as we speak, but uh, <laughs> it's only, I only have one a day. Delicious. All right, so if you have one a day and you're using it as like, okay, this is what I'm going to have, and then I'm going to basically be intermittent fasting, I have no problems with that. That's what I do. Um, and then when I eat, I still eat a good amount of calories, but I'm still below my threshold. I think a lot of people have come to this idea that, you know, oh, I can eat as much fat as I want and things like Bulletproof, things like MCT or, um, you know, fat bombs. I mean, you can pack away a whole bunch of those pretty quickly and hit your, you know, caloric intake threshold. And then, yeah, you're not going to lose weight um, no matter what you do. So it's really a balance at that point. How do you find out uh, how many calories your body is, I mean, you meaning the person, how many calories your body is uh, burning a day? Yeah, there's a couple of ways. Um, I use a, a machine called a body impedance analysis, which gives me kind of a BMR, so your basic metabolic rate. There's a lot of calculators on the internet you can look up, and they're free, and you can get an estimation of what your basic metabolic rate is. 
And then you're going to multiply that by a factor depending on how active you are. And that's going to give you basically your total energy expenditure. There's some more sophisticated ways. You can go get a DEXA scan. And with that, they usually will have a machine that's going to measure your BMR more accurately. And then from that, you can kind of factor in how active you are and see what your total energy expenditure is. These are all kind of rough estimates, um, but it gives you an idea of kind of where you're at. So I know for me, 4,000 is about where I'm at. Um, whether or not that's plus or minus, you know, 100, 200 calories, at that point, for me, it doesn't matter. But it gives me a rough idea of where I'm at. Yeah. Okay. And then, uh, yeah, last couple of questions. Do you, um, do you work with people that have, uh, you know, diseases, uh, you know, obviously diabetes or cancer or you know, what have you seen uh, the nutritional dialing in due to uh, various conditions, again, like cancer, diabetes, et cetera? Yeah. So I've worked with people that run the gamut of diseases from diabetes to cardiovascular disease to Alzheimer's disease. I think in general, people get better because you're getting rid of the kind of driving force of a lot of these processes. And so if you are removing a lot of the inflammatory effects of high insulin level, high cortisol level, um, high fructose level that's creating a lot of uric acid and decreasing nitric oxide. Um, you are basically getting rid of the fuel for the fire. And so people will get better using things like exogenous ketones, but just even endogenous ketones by getting people into ketosis allows for a different fuel source that is less inflammatory. And so it helps really reduce a lot of the stressors for whatever disease the person has, whether it's an autoimmune disease, even things like cancer, Alzheimer's, you know, in and of itself, you know, dietary changes may not reverse things like severe Alzheimer's or cancer, but it's a good adjunct to whatever other treatment they're getting. So, I mean, most, uh, I'm trying to think of a person who hasn't had a beneficial effect and I, I can't really tell you at this point, um, somebody who has not benefited from really changing their diet and their lifestyle. Mm. Um, I know it's not the norm, but any examples of uh, outliers of cases where the person was in real dire straits and the nutrition, um, you know, improved them substantially. And I know these are not the norm, but I just want to ask you about some of the results you've seen that were like happily surprising. Yeah, I think um, probably the most surprising are going to be the Alzheimer's dementia patients that um, there's really lost hope for them where you will see a tremendous change in terms of their cognition, their ability to recognize people, their ability to kind of be functional again. Um, and a lot of that has to do with really, really, for those people, you have to be extremely stringent in terms of uh, dialing down their the carbohydrate intake, really kind of upping their ketosis to, you know, very, very high levels where you're talking five to six millimoles um, in terms of their readings. But you will see within a couple months, significant improvement in, in their ability to be functional again. And I think those are probably going to be the most rewarding people. Um, one of the focus that I have, though, is on trying to prevent that from happening. So trying to address things beforehand so that once you've gotten to that point, you know, there is, there's damage that has been done that is irreversible, um, but mm. you can still make some beneficial changes. But how do we prevent 
all these things from from getting to that standpoint. And that's really kind of the the drive at this point. That's the focus, um, especially with the obesity rates that we see in children these days. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, as a hospital physician, you know, we are taught that you, you're supposed to look for certain diseases, and age is a big factor. So if somebody's you know 20 and talking about chest pain, it's unlikely to be cardiovascular disease. But if somebody's 50, then yeah, you have a pretty good uh, chance that that's what it is. But now we right. see people in their 30s having you know massive heart attacks. People in their 20s, 30s, you know, because for 30 years or so they've been basically eating the, the worst diet possible, and so it's yeah. just accelerated that process. And so we need to focus really on preventing that from happening to to our children. Yeah. Hey. Um, one one last question. What about time? So, if I'm uh, 50 years old and I've been eating badly for you know at least 30 years, uh, and I and I do things right, I change to clean up my act and all that. How long will it take me to see, to you know, to get my blood markers and all that back into good shape, and for me to experience great health again, versus someone that's you know only been eating badly for a year or five years or 10 years? Yeah, that's a hard answer or a hard question to answer because there's so many variables that go into that. I would say that, um, you know, obviously if you've been doing a pretty significant amount of damage to your body for that period of time, it's going to take longer. Um, in general, I will see, you know, within six months, most markers are dramatically improved, maybe back, not back to normal. Things like insulin will be suppressed, glucose will be suppressed, hemoglobin A1C will be much improved. Lipid markers will be much better than they were. Um, inflammatory markers will improve. So I can't give you a specific answer, like it's going to take you 90 days to get to here. But I would say in general, usually within six months, if somebody is actually uh, following kind of the protocol, um, doing what we ask, then they'll see pretty significant improvement. The weight itself may take longer. So if you are insulin resistant, and leptin resistant, you may have a much harder time getting that weight off, especially kind of the truncal fat, the viscous fat that we see, the bad fat around your belly, you know, kind of like that beer belly that people have. Um, mm-hmm. But it will come off eventually. It just may take a lot longer. Yeah, I don't know if it could be years, uh, if it, you know, if it would yes. take years or how long it might take. A lot of times what I'll see is the markers get much better, much quicker. So within six months, the weight that will take, you know, two years, three years, it'll take a long time. And a lot of times that last kind of 10, 15 pounds is really kind of cortisol driven, meaning it's a stress driven uh, reaction where you're maintaining your fat. And so at that point, it's really focusing on stress reduction, you know, by meditation, yoga, um, things like that. And then really focusing on sleep to making sure that sleep is, is really dialed in. And then you'll see the cortisol levels start to drop. And, and that last little fat will start to come off. But it can take, yeah, it can take years, unfortunately. Um, but it's really a kind of a lifelong process of that time. Okay. Um, so, uh, you know, I know you can't be everyone's doctor, unfortunately. You know, you, it sounds yeah. like you're a you know, pretty knowledgeable one. So you have resources for people, or if they want to reach out and get referrals or, you know, just get information, what's the best way for them to get in touch? Yeah. Uh, website is biohackmd.com. Uh, email is John at biohackmd.com. Those are the best ways. Um, you know, I'm on social media, biohack underscore MD. So I do post, uh, you know, videos. I do a lot of experiments. I do 
a lot of live Q and A's where I'll, I'll answer you know questions that people have and try to kind of guide people in, in the right direction. Um, I'm kind of limited on social media and email because I cannot give uh, direct medical advice. And so that's frustrating for a lot of people. Um, so a lot of times I'll just take the question and make a kind of live video about it and discuss some of the things that are happening. And maybe that'll give some insight into people um, and things that can change. All right, well, very good. Well, I appreciate you coming and I, I appreciate your insights. So thank you so much. Yeah, it's really been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.